Everyone else, I leaned over the platform edge, hoping to see the pale yellow of a train's headlight glinting off the track, but the tunnel was black. I smelled like a rained-upon, nervous sheep. My feet, in their navy pumps with the bows at the toe, were killing me, and the platform was so crammed with people that before long I began to worry someone was going to fall onto the tracks, possibly me, or maybe the person I was going to push during my imminent psychotic break. But then, magically, the crowd veered away. For a split second, I thought the stink coming off my suit had reached a deadly new level, but the wary, amused looks on the faces of those edging away weren't focused on me. I followed their gaze to a plug of a woman, her salt-and-pepper hair shorn into the sort of crew cut they give to the mentally disabled, plopped down on the concrete directly behind me. She was muttering to herself fiercely. Commuters had vacated a swath of platform all around the loon as instinctually as a herd of wildebeests evading a lioness. I was the only one stuck in the dangerous blank circle, the lost calf, the old worn-out cripple who couldn't keep up. The loon started smacking her forehead with the heel of her palm. Fuck, she yelled. Fuck. Fuck. Then she placed both her hands, palm down, on the concrete in front of her and crack smacked her forehead on the ground. The sickening noise of skull on concrete seemed to echo in the damp air. Everybody flinched, glancing about them nervously. With a squeak, I hopped back into the multitude. The loon had a black abrasion right in the middle of her forehead, like the scuff mark my shoe had left on the gynecologist's door. The train pulled in, and I wiggled into the car the loon wasn't going into. It was only once I was in the car that it came to me, like some omnipotent god of city-dwellers whispering the truth in my ear, that the only two reasons I hadn't joined right in with the loon, beating my head and screaming fuck in primal syncopation, were, one, I'd be embarrassed, and two, I didn't want to get my cute vintage suit any dirtier than it already was. Performance anxiety and a dry-cleaning bill, those were the only things keeping me from stark, raving lunacy. When I got off the subway, I called Eric from a payphone at the corner of Bay Ridge and 4th Avenue. Hey, did you get anything for dinner? He made that little sucking-in-through-his-teeth sound he always makes when he thinks he's about to get in trouble. Was I supposed to? Well, I told you I'd be late because of my doctor's appointment. Right, right, sorry, I just didn't... You want me to order something in? Don't worry about it, I'll pick something up. The only thing open was the Korean deli on the corner of 70th and 3rd. I must have looked a sight, standing in the produce aisle in my bedraggled suit, my face tracked with mascara, staring like a catatonic. I couldn't think of a thing that I wanted to eat. I grabbed some potatoes, a bunch of leeks, some hotel bar butter. I felt dazed and somehow willless, as if following a shopping list someone else had made. I paid, walked out of the shop, and started the ten-block walk home. It wasn't until I was walking past the Catholic boys' school one block over from our apartment that I realized I'd bought the exact ingredients for Julia Child's potage parmentier. The thing you learn with potage parmentier is that simple is not the same as easy. It had never occurred to me that there was a difference until Eric and I took our first slurps of Julia Child's potato soup. Certainly I had made easier dinners. Unwrapping a cellophane-swathed hunk of London broil and tossing it under the broiler was one method that came immediately to mind. 
ordering pizza and getting drunk on stoli gimlets while waiting for it to arrive? That was another favorite. Potage Parmentier didn't even hold a candle in the easy department. First, you peel a couple of potatoes and slice them up. Slice some leeks, rinse them a couple of times to get rid of the grit. Leeks are muddy little suckers. Throw these two ingredients in a pot with some water and some salt. Once they've simmered for an hour or so, mash them up with a fork or a food mill or a potato ricer. All three of these options are far more of a pain in the neck than the Cuisinart, but Julia Child allows us how a Cuisinart will turn soup into something unfrench and monotonous. Any suggestion that uses the construction unfrench is up for debate, but if you make potage parmentier, you will see her point. If you use the ricer, instead of being utterly smooth, the soup will have bits, green bits and white bits and yellow bits. After you've mushed it up, just stir in a couple of hefty chunks of butter and you're done. J.C. says sprinkle with parsley, but you don't have to. It looks pretty enough as it is, and it smells glorious, which is funny. There's not a thing in it but leeks, potatoes, and butter. There's something about peeling a potato. Not to say that it's fun, exactly, but there's something about scraping off the skin and rinsing off the dirt and chopping it into cubes before immersing the cubes in cold water because they'll turn pink if you let them sit out in the air. Something about knowing exactly what you're doing and why. Potatoes have been potatoes for a long, long time, and people have treated them in just this way, toward the end of making just such a soup. There is a clarity in the act of peeling a potato, a winnowing down to one sure, true way. And even if you did push it through some gadget you got at Crate and Barrel afterwards, the peeling was still a part of what you did, the first thing. A couple of weeks after my 29th birthday,